0: Hi, I'm Dion St. Moore, and this is Uncommon.
1: Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Dion St. Moore, founder of Moore Cosmetics, St. Moore Group Advisory and Drumplings. Thanks for coming in. Uh, we were just chatting in the kitchen earlier about um, putting out fires. I was curious, have you ever considered joining the fire department <laughs> after that little escapade? Yeah, look, um, I'm an Aries okay.
0: as a star sign. So I'm a, I'm a fire sign. So when, you know, fire signs, they, they like pushing the boundaries. Okay. Like really pushing the boundaries. And for some reason I love water. And being a fire sign, you know, it's that thing. You know, it's 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 probably a resistance thing. I can imagine it's a resistance thing. You know, let's get a little bit, you know, energetic here in terms of, you know, uncommon conversation. But when you're a, you know, when you're a, a fire sign, I can imagine you, you probably resist. You know, things that you would may get in your way. So <laughs> water for me probably is one of those things. So I probably want to, you know, try and temper it or try and curate it or, mm. you know, try and wield its energy. Um, Interesting. Which is, you know, probably a philosophy that comes into, you know, my mindset as well because I'm quite unconventional and, you know, probably flowing a bit, little bit like
1: water, I guess. Yeah. Do you? Good question, though. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. How we got to that point. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking how, um, how far up was your apartment to that fire? Um, so I'm three levels up.
0: So, yeah, look, to answer your question, too, have I ever wanted to be a firefighter? No. (laughs) But I think a combination of, you know, growing growing up in the country and having an analytical mindset. So, my mind's just constantly, you know, working. It doesn't sort of stop in that sense. So, when you have a mind that's constantly, um, processing, Mm. If something happens, I'm very, very reactional and very quick on my feet. So So whatever that is, it's been thousands of scenarios, you know, whether I've been in Rio or, you know, on top of, uh, you know, the ski hill, you know, you you sort of train your mind to be aware of things. Mm. Um, And that that leads on to a really uh, really crucial area of, I think, me as a person. um, When you study something like a design uh, discipline, if you're exceptional at what you do, you will take in everything constantly. Mm. So I'm constantly taking things in, even walking into your apartment now and into the studio, um, you know, I've already seen how things are placed, your bar, <laughs> you know, the bookshelf over here, I've already noted all the books on it. I've seen the bottles at the top here of the great wines you've drunk. Um <laughs> So for me, I just see everything and you take it in. So those Mm. things, when they're coupled, when you're seeing everything and being quite
1: reactional, then you're sort of quick on your feet. Yeah, it's very um, A-type behavior. Yeah, correct. Which I I have too. Okay. Um, And that A-type behavior, people think it's better or worse. It's definitely a double-edged sword because it can make you, like for me, like – almost obsessive with things like work yeah. as an example yep and you, you look you just took
0: you just took the the, the next uh, you know paragraph straight out of my mouth and that's correct there's it's a double-edged sword so mm. I'm constant um, <laughs> and then that means you just don't have downtime but when Pretty I much. do have downtime I will sit on the couch and I, I just put the television on and I don't care what's on On in the background. Yeah. And then it's what we were talking about earlier on that it's either white noise, my (laughs) my white noise. I do like peace and quiet, but then it'll just be the television on in the background. Okay. And whatever it is, it'll be a cooking show or, you know, I don't put reality television shows on. Don't, you know, don't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) The Kardashians or, you know, something crazy like that.
1: Um, so cook, cooking shows is like your go-to. Yeah, cooking shows my go-to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you must have loved like the heyday of Ma- remember when MasterChef came out. Yes. That was the I got to say that must have been the pinnacle of cooking and food in Australia in the last twenty years. Yeah, definitely. Like it elevated it to another level. Yep. Um, and I think it gave you know and it opened up people's interest in
0: cooking too. Yeah. You know, which Australia's always been second nature to the, you know, to, I think, home cooking, because, you know, we think, unfortunately, people think of us as two steak and veg nation, which we are, but then you you start looking at, obviously, Europe and all of those beautiful countries, and they just have such abundance of incredible cooking. yeah But now, at least, you know, you're right, those sorts of shows, you know, have opened up people and, you know, at least has given them the confidence to you know, to try those to, things, to right? It, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean,
1: it, it. what it made me realize is, is how the impact of different groups of people, like having a Greek Mediterranean background, let's say, made me realize how many different things impacted Australian cuisine and how unique it was. Like, you know, in America, let's say 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't assume that most people would have olive oil in their mm. kitchen. But a lot of people even 10, 15 years ago in Australia had olive oil in their kitchen. Yeah. Quite a lot of people. Yep. A lot of friends who had predominantly Australian backgrounds, Asian backgrounds, they had it because it was in the supermarket because people bought it. So um, there's all these little kooky things that I noticed watching those shows and how it impacted us as a cooking culture. And then obviously, you know, MasterChef elevated it. It made celebrities out of people. Yeah. That's probably what it was, is the celebrity factor. Yes. Now – Speaking of uh, you and your personality and, let's say, growing up, what's sort of your earliest memory of life?
0: Um, look, I grew up in far north Queensland, so I'm way up north. Um Maribor. Cairns, Mariba, Port Douglas. So, you know, those sorts of areas. Um, and looking back, you know, growing up in a small, you know, Mariba was a very uh, industry-based um region so mm. tobacco was the the big area up there okay um, I would have uh, assumed like sugarcane no, sugarcane as you get down to the coast okay so into Mossman and Port Douglas so my yeah. mother's side was down in Mossman and Port Douglas um, my father's side was up in mariba and funnily enough those two things you know are my my probably my earliest sort of memories of growing up up uh, you know up north you um, you know, especially something, you know, like I can vividly remember walking into um, a tobacco kiln wow. and there's these massive leaves. They're the size of, you know, two bodies, these leaves, and they they just get hung up and, you know, they just get air dried and you walk in and there's just this incredible aroma. So I, I, things like that, I, I you know, I remember stuff like that. That's, um, that's scent. Yeah, that's scent. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, and that, is you know that's quite interesting that you pick up on that because that obviously l- leads further on into my life and then in the cosmetics and then yeah. that takes me to my cosmetics sort of uh, area. So well, I
1: can see how things like Tom Ford would inspire you because like things like tobacco and mm. sugarcane and all that is like a big feature of his um, his scent, so to speak. Yes, that they are nice masculine scents. If that makes sense. Yep. But yeah, the reason I pick up on the scent thing is mainly because for me growing up, it was my dad's factory. Okay. Printer. Right. And so there was really two smells you had. It was either fresh paper, which was very strong. Yes. Or like warm paper or the smell of ink. Yeah, wow. Um, which is, uh, one is really warm and one is cold. I don't know how else to explain that, but one was a cold scent, so it wasn't, strong in the air but when you smelt it in proximity it was very strong and then the smell of paper was sort of just everywhere all mm. the time i like that yeah. and it was machinery a
0: and also machinery i'd imagine was another part, yeah like sort of bits the-
1: of oil and stuff like yeah. that but it wasn't as yep. strong as the smell of like packaging and cardboard and paper and all that sort of stuff right rubber bands yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember sitting on this desk. I distinctly remember years and years of work, like sitting on one of those high rise desks where you're basically just working with some other casual. And because he just put me on as a casual, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I was like 14 or 15. Good one, bad. And yeah. <laughs> and he paid me like, he paid me less than them as yeah. well. That was the best thing about it. <laughs> he probably wouldn't get away with that shit nowadays. Um, but yeah, like just sitting there. Packing up all sorts of projects, like wrapping in rubber bands and in boxes, and all sorts of bindery work, so to speak. Right. Yeah, that was my distinct memory. But it's a, it's interesting how those things like affect you later on in life. Yeah, I think so. You and get I, nostalgia for it. Yeah, but if you're if you're if
0: you're if you're aware of it, um, you hope that you can retrace re, you know retrace uh, those memories, and then you understand w- why or where you're at, mm. and that that. Plays in many aspects of your life psychologically. I think you know whether you've had trauma, whether you've had great things in life that happened as a kid, whether you are surrounded by things like ink and those smells. They form for you now. If you maybe stop and really dug deep, that you know it's probably carved something for you. Oh. And what sort of significance that has. Then you have to sort of layer that, you know, into your current self. I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, the significance for me, at least, is that that idea of media, paper, printing stories was always an element. And right. so, having a Greek dad an Aussie mum, dad was always down my throat about doing a profession. So, accounting, lawyer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Um, doctor, whatever it may be. Did that at uni, hated it, and then gradually. Went in the so I went into financial services, then I did marketing and sales in financial services, and then gradually got into the agency or more creative space, which my family's always been in. Yes, so it makes me wonder like, you know, parents will tell you don't do this thing or do this thing, and the reality is sometimes it's almost defined for you mm. based on the things that you liked as a kid or yeah. you know, your personality trait, etc. Yes, so I guess. I was intrigued from your perspective. I mean, when you got into the whole more cosmetics business, it must have been quite an obvious story for yourself because you know you've got these smells, these ideas that come from your background. It may not have lined up at that point in time, but mm. do you think, in hindsight, it was sort of a no-brainer? Yeah, no, it is definitely is. Yeah, uh,
0: it it definitely has a, a lineage along the way that you know those those connect the dots sort of scenario. Um, but going back to your, you know, going back to your f- original question as well, I think when you're a creative, I think that's some of my earliest, you know, sort of memories as well. I was right. one of those kids that pulled everything apart no matter what. So if I was given, you know, a Tonka truck. Okay. Okay. I would have pulled that thing apart. Yeah. I pulled off the little thing that bloody, you know, kept the wheel on. I, re- I wanted to know, you know, how it was, put, you know, <laughs> how it worked, whatever it was. And there yeah. was a million one things, you know, um, that I was given, you know, games and all sorts of stuff. And I would pull them apart and then I would want to put them all back together. So, my again, that goes back to that analytical mindset of, you know, how do things work? Why do they work? Why, why are they this way, and why have they been pieced that way mm. and ultimately, as a designer or as a great and obviously if we when we get to that, but obviously I studied industrial design, but um, when you are of that caliber, then you want a better product constantly, so mm. for me, going back to your original question, I pulled things apart because I was curious why they were great, Mm. why they weren't great, how they could be better and how I can improve, you know, that, let's just say Tonka truck as an example, but,
1: you know, whatever. But Were were either of your parents like that at all? uh, No. Okay. No, they weren't. Was there any lessons you picked up from them along the way from a principled point of view? Uh, My father is quite...
0: Um, you know, he's typical Italian, old school, you know, he, he just it thinks that way, you know, old school in his mentality, um, get a good job, probably similar to yours, you know, be stable and do all of that sort of stuff. I, and I didn't take any of his advice. But my mother is a little bit more, um, you know, she's, she's the one who's, you, if anything, you know, uh, nurtured me to be open-minded and have a... Open mindset when it comes to life, and you know all of those sorts of things. So mm. she prob- she allowed me to be smart enough and open enough when I'm dealing with things, rather than saying, you know, don't do that, don't touch that. Or, Why are you doing that? Yeah, she sort of would let me do it. So that that those sorts of things gave me those foundations early on. So when when they're coupled with my my curious mind. My not wanting to understand how things worked, then a, a parental figure that allowed you to do that, then you know that, that they all build
1: into something as you grow, I guess. Yeah. Which is quite quite interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting. I mean, yeah. my parents are very similar to that regard. So I know you studied um, Bachelor of Fine Arts, Bachelor of Arts. So finishing up at RMIT in 93. Yep. Straight out of the gate, you found your own um, award-winning multidisciplinary design firm. That was yes. DDT Design. Yep. So this to me seemed like uh, more of a graphic design business and then D1 Design was more of a industrial design business. Am I uh, wrong? In that? Well, yeah. Look, I think... It was
0: quite interesting because when I came out of university, I teamed up with two mates of mine. Okay. And one was a fashion, uh, I think it's fashion merchandising. The, the, the Oh, visual merchandising? Vi- no, fashion mer- merchandising. So he, he he they study more the fashion side of merchandising and, you know, how it all sort of sits and all that sort of stuff. And then... Another industrial designer. So we pretty much did. We came out of university and we started this thing. But <laughs> as you know, when you come out of university to get you know your first gigs, it's, um, it's tough run. So we just did everything. Mm. You know, we did graphic design. <laughs> we did product design. We did commercial interiors. We did some residential interiors. You know, we picked up a job down in Port Melbourne. I remember we did. We fitted out a whole um, office building. You know, here I am, no idea about, you know, fitting out office buildings. <laughs> but whatever we could get our hands on, we got our hands on. It, yeah. So that's, I guess that's why it's sort of, um, it was a multidisciplinary design practice. And back then, there was the North, sort of North Melbourne Council, and I, I don't know, I can't remember what the council was, whatever it is up there. But, you know, they threw millions of dollars into, you know, building creative hubs um right. and somehow we got our hands on you know got got our hands on this gig and we got became part of this new build and you know they they wanted to build in you know fashion design and product design and um all of this stuff so you know it was it was probably early days of you know sort of incubators i guess mm. um and you know that was a big big one for us as well so those sorts of things you know
1: i guess built built that business yeah it's always interesting to see people who go, because we've had other people who run agencies that just like straight out the gate of uni, they just go into founding their own business. Yep. And w- was it as simple as just the fact that you know it was too tough to get a job, and so you like fuck it, we'll just do it on our own? No, no. I think it. It look looking at it now,
0: um, it go, it definitely goes back to my personality type. I didn't. I didn't okay. want to fall into the you know the the gates of you know being being part of all of that i i, I think i figured that out pretty quickly mm. um you know while i was at uni you know i just i was just one of those characters that was constantly pushing the boundaries as well you know i was head of you know all the f- functions and all the you know all the cool gigs that we'd always organize and all of that sort of stuff and so You know, when you're you're sort of pushing things constantly, yeah, I think that's... You'd clash with authority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that's probably quite a good one. I was constantly in the dean's office, but 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 interestingly enough, you know, I was in the dean's office and then I convinced them to employ me while I was at university (laughs) to do work. So, you know, things (laughs) like that. Here I was, you know, a 20-year-old being convincing the dean of, you know, architecture... And she was I can't what was her name now? she was a very famous woman, um and I'd have to think about it, but you know, like oh, here I was at uni student going to you know hmm. the the dean's you know house for dinner and doing all these crazy things at a young age, you know, yeah, things that I forget about now, but again they that's that was me just pushing the boundaries
1: and see how see how far I could get away with stuff, yeah, and sometimes <laughs> when you're in when you're an employee, it is. Very hard to do that stuff and I found that for the first sort of four to five years of my working career and that it just didn't align with my personality. I'd get in more trouble than anything. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, I. it took me a while to accept that that sometimes, like, sometimes you just don't have personality traits that gel with working for other people. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah, you know? that's, Every, and that's everyone's the other different. thing too Everyone's yeah. different. It just means that you've got probably a harder – path initially in the offset Mm. so but um, it's good
0: that you work that out because i think a lot of people take a long time to work that out um and it it it's it is like anything isn't it you've you've got to go you, you either fall into that sort of situation and then you work it out and or you 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 jump and you know it's you know either early on or um you know have the confidence to take that jump and when you do you know you you think, why the hell didn't I do this sooner? Yeah.
1: I guess my problem is that I would um, get too passionate about decisions that were outside of my control Right. when I worked for someone else. And so I'd care too much and so I'd get into arguments yep, yep. about it where it's like it's not really my business, Yeah. you know, literally, not really my business. Yeah, like, but a good attribute though. It is, but, you know, it also gets you into trouble. Yep. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, So I guess I was curious, you know, you you had these two design businesses. It was obvious in one of the interviews you mentioned how more was sort of born out of this homewares brand D1 that was producing homewares and you realized there was a place for more because essentially you could, well, you discovered recurring revenue Mm -hmm. essentially as opposed to a one-off sale. But I was curious, like why go from the business of essentially an expert to a product business per se what was the what was the initial draw there were you bored of dealing with clients and disagreeing with their opinions because that is a commonality amongst creatives that we orig- and there's a lot of creatives that we interview yes. and then eventually go and found their own businesses because they're fed up with people not taking their advice <laughs> so i was curious is, is there something like that? Was there something like that there? Or yeah. Was it, look, you know, I think it was just the
0: opportunity. I think it was just it was the opportunity. Yep. It, it, it was the opportunity. I understand that side of things as well. That yep. side of things as well. Um, dealing with clients and all of that sort of thing, which I had to do early on. So now that I think about that, and you raise that. It's a good point. Um, like I remember doing a, an interview, We did an interior for a very, very, very wealthy uh, Malaysian family, and she was royalty and they had a, a an apartment in the Rockman's Regency and they just got, said, here's, you know, $250,000 go and you know, fit yeah. out our apartment. It's like, what the hell? But, you know, we would do it and then, you know, there's ov- obviously the clashes because, you know. Right, yeah. That, that's, and I, so I get your point. But going back to your question, um, being an industrial designer, obviously I build... Product create product um, that is, you know, it, it's it's beautiful to look at, but then it's consumable. So ultimately, once I got through uh, D1, which was a Homewares brand, yeah, but it was a beautiful, you know, if I ever had to do a like for like with the Homewares brand, it would be like it was, you know, as a it was a bit of an Alessi sort of style homewares brand, you know, we did really beautiful product. But then um, that translation into more was really starting to understand the homewares, which when you create a lamp, for example, and you build this beautiful lamp, sure you might be selling at $500, but you don't come back in, in six weeks' time and buy another lamp. Yeah. So then we just started adding in basic product Um, into our collections of, you know, sort of body care and soaps and, you know, things, candles and stuff like that. And then those things, you know, repetitively, you know, they had a repeat Um, and, you know, it's that consumable um,
1: sort of scenario. So that's that's when the penny dropped. Yeah, that's when you go from like a million-dollar business to a multi-million-dollar business. Yeah. Yeah. And very quickly. Yeah, very quickly.
0: Very, very quickly. If you've got good product um, and good good design and, you know, that all falls back to the industrial design philosophy and you can keep up
1: with production, then that's when you're right, that's when it becomes repeatable. When you think about product, what were the sort of golden principles you pulled from that time, like there's 20 years in that business thereabouts? What were the sort of golden principles that you pulled into drumplings today?
0: I think golden principles through more was... It's really packaging design. Packaging okay. design is really what it's about. For 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 more in its heyday, it was definitely packaging packaging design. So really? through that period, um, early days, you'd remember like ASOP had just started out, and then there were all of these other sort of brands that were very similar, but yeah, very yeah. very clean. You know, it's typeset on white or you know whatever. It's just you know <laughs> it's, type it's set you there. know it's that typeset thing, right? Yeah, which a thousand brands have done. Yeah. And they've all been successful, but then all of a sudden I, I, I saw this window and I just went, well, why isn't anybody, you know, being ridiculously ornate and over-designing packaging for the cosmetic world? Mm. And that's when, you know, again, that sort of, that, that scenario sort of popped and um, we built yeah, you beautiful that packaged product. Mm. Um, so that, that really was the key. And the second thing was um, our fragrances. So we were, you know, our fragrances were incredible for their times as well. You know, be, you know, back then uh, no one was pushing the boundaries with, with fragrance and, you know, sort of um, early, you know, sort of mid-90s um, or whenever, when, when did more two th- early 2000s. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody was really pushing the boundaries for that. So then, you know, we started really pushing the boundaries. Mm. So it really was
1: coupled with those two. So the business originally founded with um, uh, a young lady who you took on a date. Yep. uh, Really sort of established from that. Yes. Um, And, I mean, it it was interesting to go through the whole journey and look at things. I mean, recently you took an exit from the business and I guess we were intrigued around that. I mean, two decades in it. I guess I was curious. Why sell? Why not just have someone else run it? Um, was it as simple as you'd had your time and it was time to move on and do something else? Um, or what was the thought process there? Yeah, look, it, it had it was fifteen years,
0: and th- there's there's many factors. You know, I got to open up, you know, offices around the world. You know, I was in the US office, you know. Every month, you know, I was in the UK office. I was visiting distributors in and out of the country for years and years and years. You know, there wasn't a month that I wasn't on a plane somewhere. Every month I was out of the country. Yeah, so right. stuff like that. Um, adds up. It adds up. And also I think we we really pushed the boundaries for a long time, at least for a good 10 to 12 years we really pushed pushed it hard. And then, then there was... All the competitors. Then they all, all of a sudden, worked it out, Mm. and they all latched on. So, um, and that doesn't mean you can't keep innovating, but it gets harder. I I just felt as though that you know, my my time it was my time. You know, I'd done it for for a good you know, like I said, fifteen years. Pushed the boundaries hard. um, Travelled, lived, you know, done all the things, but. It was it was sort of time to do something new. Yeah, it really was time to do something new, and that's 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 part of my nature as well. You know, I probably get you know you, you, you'll understand that you get bored quite easily when you're doing stuff like that. And yeah, you know, I was you know, and then look to be honest, to be brutally honest, I was going to the office at eleven o'clock in the morning, and I'd be in there for thirty minutes, and I'd be like, well, I've got nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it actually got to that point. Yeah. But, you know, like you got got 100 plus staff, whatever, and they're all doing their things and there's a massive warehouse with another, you know, 50 staff in it. And I, I just didn't have anything to do. Mm. So then I lo- I'd probably lost a bit of the challenge too. So, I'd, you know, the it became, you know, Groundhog Day and, you know, I didn't have to, I didn't have anything to do. Okay. Which now... I'm hands-on with you know what I'm doing again, so that that's yeah. you know I love that I love that I'm in there, you know, learning about production you know food and all the things that I had no idea about and yeah. I still don't have any idea about, but I'm learning constantly yeah. so again you know it's it's that so look it's a it's a few things but you know probably ultimately I did get I probably got bored
1: mm. do you do you because uh, that's something I would have in my own. Personality, I guess, is there sort of cues for that that you'd look for now to prevent yourself getting bored with the project? Like I, I've got a sense that doing this project uncommon, I couldn't do it for the rest of my life because of the type of people that come in the yes. room. But I also do worry like could I get bored of the, the format so to speak? Yeah. Is there any, th- any guidance you'd have for someone like myself? <laughs>
0: Uh, that's a very good question you know when you when you are that a personality type you you constantly need to be um you know your mind needs to be constantly you know stimulated stimulated yeah Yeah. thank you that's that's what i was looking for um there's a there is a massive danger in it there's a massive danger in it you know and you, there's all the things that come with that, you know, complacency, and mm. um, so you've you've just got to be. I think you've got to be highly aware. But then it also depends on your sort of comfort, va- you know, values as well. Some people like being comfortable, so then you know they're happy being on that sort of that level. But if you're you're, you're constantly pushing the boundaries, well then you know there's a danger in it too because you're always living on that edge mm. which i tend to do a little bit as well you know i'm living on the edge a little bit at the moment really throwing everything at drumplings um, and i believe in it but i'm living on the edge again because you know it's a, it's a pretty much a startup yeah so you know so there's a, there's a, you know it, <laughs> it keeps me alive and keeps yeah. me stressed and all of those things which i didn't have for a long time so okay
1: yeah so the lack of stress maybe is um a good indicator,
0: yeah okay, yeah, um, yeah so I don't know whether i've
1: got whether they answered your question <laughs> then I'm not really sure, but I think i I think I got it i think I think stress is like the lead indicator do you if you don't feel stressed about something, then you should be worried, yeah, probably um, <laughs> <laughs> so dumplings world's first fusion dumplings brand, and I guess your first foray into the space we've mm-hmm. got flavors like. Cheeseburger, mac and cheese seems to be like the the number one flavor that everyone talks about. Beef and yep. dang, truffle mushroom, butter chicken. You came up with this idea, drinking with mates. Yep. You were wondering why no one had mixed this uh, idea of Western dishes with dumplings. And to me initially the idea sounded like honestly a tacky combination but it's obviously come off and the food is good because I've yes. tasted it. Like I'd been to dumplings du- back in the day when it first launched and you've obviously got this frozen food or this food-distributed business now, which is everything. How did you ensure it didn't just become a trend and it actually became a sustainable business?
0: Yeah, look, the, the, the drumpling story is quite fascinating. It really is a good story. Um, number one, I was staggered and I was staggered. Nobody had touched dumplings anywhere on the planet. So everyone's touched Vietnamese, they've touched Chinese, they've touched French, they've all mucked around with it and given it a modern edge, right? But nobody had touched dumplings and it just fascinated me. But two parts that I found really curious was that, yes, dumplings have been around for a 1,000 years and, you know, there's a handful of them that are super famous, you know, pork and chive and the list goes on. And then they had never been tampered with. And then the second thing was that, there's the old school Chinese restaurants that are still old school. You walk in and, you know, the carpet's sticky and dirty and, you know, the walls (laughs) haven't been touched and painted for a thousand years and the Chinese lady just says to you, two people, five, that's all they say, you know, not welcome, but how many people? Yeah. It's always the case. So they're all, you know, it's old school mentality and old school. And then... What, what So those two things coupled fascinated me that nobody had modernised experience. So the restaurant really was built to prove the concept and I built the restaurant purely to prove the concept. Mm. Um, it was an expensive, prove the concept, but it, it worked. <laughs> and, you know, we, we were generating serious cash, you know, within the first sort of six months. So it, I had to prove that concept on a commercial sense before... You know, we sort of jumped into, you know, the other areas that, you know, now that we're in. Mm. And then, of course, certain aspects of the world have forced us to pivot, which has been great, but it has been part of the process. So, um, Certain aspects being COVID. COVID, yeah. (laughs) COVID, correct. Um, Just a pandemic. (laughs) But going back to that, I'm still fascinated because every dish on the planet can be built into... A dumpling. Hmm. So we're working on some incredible duck dumplings at the moment. You know, um, we're looking at plant-based dumplings. Nobody's done an incredible plant. The, there's a massive. There's just massive opportunity out there. Hmm. Massive, massive opportunity of of a product that we go back to what you spoke about, and it's a product that is repeatable
1: and it's scalable yeah. and it's you know it can be global.
0: So I'm you've very pulled similar to you the... pulled
1: elements from the time in more cosmetics initially from learning about recurring and repeat revenue, and then you've pulled elements from product design as well. Um, you mentioned COVID before. So that would have massively impacted the business, obviously. Yes. Um, how has that how has that in particular changed the go to market for drumplings in the last six months?
0: Um so can I just answer just a really, really important area there as well that you just picked up on is you are right. It's the coupling of my industrial design, uh, you know, sort of training and university, whatever you want to call that, um, coupled with, you know, that repetitive and, you know, scalable and, you um, Product that is consumable because it is consumable product at the end of the day, mm. um, and then being able to curiously build that into something new. So, let's just say with drumplings right now, you know, it's a dumpling, but again, coupled with those two things, it's you know, you're you technically, I'm building a new product, it is a product, and people don't sort of see it that way, but it is a new product. Whether I turn around tomorrow and do a you know a crepe suzette dumpling or a you know a um you know a, a paella dumpling which is absolutely incredible um you you are building that into a product ultimately mm. so I, I i i like that you you appreciate that um but going to your question now what it was about the Closure of the restaurant, right?
1: Yeah, and essentially what what would have changed in the last six months about how you guys go to market? What are your main channels today?
0: Well, main channels today are purely s- supermarket now. Wow. So we've built – so obviously COVID forced us to shut for seven or eight months, as you know, in Melbourne and everywhere in the world, you know, restaurants have just suffered heavily in the hospitality industry.
1: Melbourne um, in particular,
0: though, has copped it hard. Copped it hard, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for us, then I had to make the decision: do I reopen and then to keep throwing money into the business yeah. and keep suffering, which you do because, as you know, you know people just aren't you know in the city. Um, so we made that call, um, and then it, it was it was a full remodel. Mm. It was a full remodel. So we built our factory in Thomastown. Um, and we just started producing our du- our own dumplings. Prior to that, we had a third party, so we were third party three um, PL with our dumplings. But then, um, you know, we just pulled it, it, all it all in house, and
1: yeah.
0: um, off we went. But also, that's also part of my journey with more as well. So, with more as an example, packaging came out of China, came to Australia, came to filling um, factories, and you know, cosmetic f- um, fillers. And then would come back to us so you know it does this whole thing and you know you you obviously take a massive chunk out of that middle section because you're paying someone else to make the product for you Mm. whereas now you know i'm either getting bags from somewhere and bringing the bringing them in we make it and then we send it out so there's none of this you know there's none of this middle person you know sort of scenario so that's Another big lesson that I learned from more days. Okay, so um, you've gone
1: more direct to consumer, essentially by bringing more in house. More in house, yeah. More in house. More in house, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in-house. In-house, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so again, you know, that makes a lot
0: more makes a lot more sense for us to be able to control our destiny as well. Yeah. Whereas before, we still were able to do it, and these guys were big, you know, massive contractors. Um, and if you're filling, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, hand creams or whatever, they could scale it easily. Mm. Um, but you know, you're, you're sort of paying them, and you're in their destiny. So it's just better that now that we have, you know, our own control.
1: You, yes, you. Are you intrigued by this episode? If so, go to our footer on the website n e u r a w l e dot com, morale dot com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode. At all, we'd love your support, and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series. But without going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. I think um, it may be frustrating now in the last six to 12 months, but the shutting down of the restaurant will probably be, in hindsight, one of the better things for you. Mm. Um, there's yep. also the opportunity in years to come of you've probably heard about them like dark kitchens or sort of um, like Uber or delivery specific kitchens as yes. like a test bed, yep, so to speak for for getting the product out there for people to initially try. Yep, but yeah, I think e-commerce and supermarkets is probably like really the future of the business. Yeah,
0: no, it is. It definitely is. You know, you when you when you have a restaurant, it's great because you've you've got a Physical location, and you know people love that, but it's one location. Yeah, and that's it. And so I can't, can't pick that up and drop it into Perth. You can, but you can't pick it up tomorrow and put it in Perth so people get in Perth get to try the product. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, if if we're in a hundred supermarkets, and you know the list keeps growing, um. Everyone in those areas, wherever they those supermarkets are, gets to try the product and gets yeah. to, you know, consume the product. And, again, it's fun because, if, because the product is fun. And it, as you said earlier, um, we build good product now. Um, you know, it's great for kids. It's great for families, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We have heaps of mums that just say, you know, Ooh, interesting. the kids won't, you know, they don't. They won't eat, you know what kids are like, they just don't eat stuff and then all of a sudden you give them a mac and cheese dumpling, they go mental for it. Same with the cheeseburger, you know, the last thing that mum wants to do is take your kid to McDonald's because of all the bad rap that McDonald's gets but, you know, we have our cheeseburger dumplings and their kids love them (laughs) but they are made with, you know, exceptional ingredients, you know, not patties that, well, I don't know what, McDonald's make stuff with these days, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I've worked, I've, worked, I've worked on a broiler
1: at Hungry Jack's when I was like 13, 14. Oh, I can tell you, right. it's right. It's not good. They're frozen cakes of um, miscellaneous meat.
0: Yeah. I that you it. just don't
1: know what's in it. But, yeah, there you go. Um, that's so funny that you mentioned the kids because when I think about it through my cousin's kids, it's funny to see the lengths they will go at certain ages to inject things like vegetables into their diet. Mm. Like, you know, um, the, they, they used to buy them like these little veggie cakes or whatever, but they, the only reason they ate them is cause they looked like sort of the shape of a potato or whatever, but it was just full of things like broccoli and beans and all this stuff that they like find bitter or didn't like, and that they were now eating, which is yeah, so right. funny. It's just like, whatever will get the job done. Um, and you can see that there's a lot of potential there. Um, Obviously, it's quite obvious based on our conversation that you have an obsession with product. Mm-hmm. You know, Jacob and I were doing the notes and you ha- we noted both noted that you've got this incredible focus on it and I'd, I'd say that comes from being a detail oriented or A-type individual. So walk us through what your creative process would look like for coming up with a new flavor of dumpling from A, being... The initial thought of it mm-hmm. to be being having the actual first taste test, you know, for you guys and your team to to taste or check out. That's actually a really good. It's a good question because you,
0: you'd be surprised at see. And again, this goes back, and this is another area that we haven't covered, which I find fascinating. And it's probably one of the again, don't get me wrong, I love design and I love industrial design and I love product design, but ultimately at the end of the day, it is the, it is the psychology of the product. So, right. you look at a you look at an iPhone or you look at a car, that beautiful, you know, Ferrari over there, and that car has an appeal to you because it's been designed exceptionally well mm-hmm. or it has all the bangs and whistles that makes it sexy for you, right? Or your Dyson, which I noticed was hanging up <laughs> down there as well, which is another great industrial designer, by the way. Yeah. And it's a sexy machine, right? So it's been built and made to look sexy, right? And again, with us, we've built amazing dumplings, like some really incredible ones, and they just haven't been a success. So then it goes into all of this mindset of what people will look at a a certain product. So let's just say I'll I'll use a really good example of something that we're toying with at the moment and and that's a vegemite and cheese dumpling. Okay. So will it work? Will it will it not work? But there's the psychology of people's perception of Vegemite. And, vegemite yes. yeah. and then it goes into this whole thing about people and how they think about vegemite and how they think about cheese and then are they curious about it? Why are they curious about it? Why do they want to eat that product? Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes quite it becomes quite complex. Like I said, you know, we've done some some really amazing dumplings. Like, what what's a uh, I can't even think of it now. <laughs> the, it'll come to me in a minute. You love but, that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Conversation. Oh. <laughs> what was the dumpling? <laughs> yeah, and you know, and people just they didn't latch onto it because it just didn't have you know something that they really connect to. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: Whereas, you know, our top sellers, as you know, they're things that people resonate with. So cheeseburger, mac and cheese, butter chicken. So they have this automatic sort of connection with it. So, again, if I was to go to my own, going to your original question, if we were to build that Vegemite and cheese product, we would go through the process, we'd do many variations of it with different percentages, and then it would be, Wrapped into a dumpling, it would get steamed, and we would go through the process of taste testing. But again, we look at product now that resonates with the audience as well and connects with the audience because that's quite important. Yeah,
1: I think uh, emotional attachment is a is a key, um, a key principle that that people would talk to behavioural science, um maybe around certain products, but I often find that when you chat to people around the success or lack of success of something, it's often to do with how divisive that thing is. I feel Mm -hmm. like Vegemite and cheese is quite a divisive thing. Yeah. If you pulled a line of random people off the street, let's say 10 or 20 of them, I feel like it'd be a 50-50 split of people who love it and hate it. But that is actually a good thing because the 50% who do love it. Like I really, really like Vegemite and cheese. Also, like, I don't know if you've noticed, there you go, like Vegemite and avocado, yes, have you, that's like a real I love that thing. Too, yeah. You actually see it on, um, th- they now have it on the Vegemite packet, yeah, right, uh, on the on the jar, so to speak, yeah, right. But then okay. there is also people who hate Vegemite, oh yeah, which is now only a small mi- majority, I'd say, a um, minority, I'd say. Yeah, I tend to agree. So, yeah. so look that that I find
0: that real, you know, quite curious. And even when we, to give you an example, when we built the cheeseburger dumpling. For the first time, and I didn't know this at the time when we launched, but it was fascinating to see people's reactions when they put the cheeseburger in their mouth for the first time. They put it in their mouth and they went, well, what the hell just happened? I'm not eating a cheeseburger, but I feel like I've just had, I, eaten yeah. a cheeseburger. And then it takes it takes their sensories all the way back to the last time they had a McDonald's, yeah. probably at 2 a.m. And they go, oh, f- holy wow, that was the last time. So yeah. all of this stuff now... Coupled with, you know, all of that is how we, that's how we look at product now. We look at all of those aspects when we're building a product and what, you know, how broad it, it sort of can can
1: be, I guess. And would that happen before you even make the product or will you yes. just make sure that it tastes actually good first? Uh, it, it, it starts before, yeah. Okay. And then we build it so it tastes good, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah because yeah, I could imagine that you could have a million flavors. Mm. Um, peanut butter and jelly. You yep. know. I think I saw in that Studio Ten interview someone mentioned escargot. Oh ah, yes. Like just every, there's a million flavors you could come up with. Yep, yep. Um So it is it if is you had it's that limitless. you can make you could just waste all your money on R and D. Yeah. Yep.
0: Um, but it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And, you know, like I said, some things, like I said, some were a success and some weren't. But it's just because, you know, there, there just wasn't that connectivity to the, to the, you know, I, I almost say to, to the masses, you know, people people want to have that, it's that emotional response to it, that emotional connectivity. Mm. Um, and that goes with any product design, as you know, so... You buy something because you love it because it looks
1: good and then hopefully it it works exceptionally well as well. How do you pull back from a lot of the product stuff? Because I can imagine someone like yourself, you could get really deep in the weeds of product and with a business like Drumplings, are there people, are there activities, are there things that are constantly pulling you back to the element of running the business? Because that's a dichotomy that you'd have regularly between – being essentially the manager or the person who's running things and being the person who's largely in charge of product?
0: Mm, no, I don't know. No, I think, you know, create creatively, you know, you sort of, you've got to couple those two, as, as you said, because then you are at the forefront and you're talking to people mm. um, and you're getting that, you know, that hopefully
1: an honest reaction. But, yeah, I think. It depends on the business you're in. You know, if you're in a product business, I think it's um, it is a lot easier. Uh, actually, no, I I'll switch that around. I think in a service business, it's a lot easier to get stuck in the weeds, like the business that I'm in, because there's actual delivery for the client on on the services side of things. Where um, product businesses, you can't be the only person to deliver the product. There's there's just it simply is not possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's delivery for a start like you can't be also making the product the dumpling and delivering the dumping on top of all the other things that yes. get done um but it's easy in a service business i feel to get pulled into the weeds and yeah, I'm, okay. I'm guilty of that
0: yeah okay okay i see where you're going with that now yeah, yeah look you look you've got to, i think you've got to cross you've got to cross lots of uh, i think disciplines mm-hmm. and that's something that i really enjoy too like i said i'm not uh, to you earlier I'm not an expert in the hospitality industry but I'm learning a lot now and it's just another complex area so you know it just fascinates me to learn all of that now but mm. again yes I'm crossing a lot of areas and I like to at least have a small percentage of understanding of all of those areas whether it's supermarkets or how you have to deal with the buyers or whatever the case is which I'm doing at the moment um and then you know you sort of have to let that go. But you, you, I think, like any any business, you've sort of got to be across everything. Mm. You, unfortunately, when you're, yeah, you, you know, the owner or the director or whatever you want to call yourself, um, you, you do unfortunately have to be across
1: everything. Yeah, you you've got to understand every single component. Yeah, that's right. Those you're stuffed. Yeah. So, um, before we get into rapid fire questions to finish things off, I guess I'm curious. You've done a few of these interviews now, written, audio based, TV based. What's a question you wish you got asked more by people doing interviews?
0: Is this one of those rapid? Is this one of the rapid no, fire ones? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, you know, as an example, we had um, a photographer in here once doing an interview, and he spoke for twenty minutes about personal finance. Right. Like that's his obsessive topic that he likes to get into. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything like that? Um,
0: if I had a subject matter that I the, you know that still fascinates me it's what's happened over the last 100 years and being an industrial designer I see it so uh, implicitly and so incredibly in detail but the last 100 years has been absolutely pinnacle in the human race right mm. so. Let's go back 100 years right now, you and I go back in time, we will be sitting probably in a shed with a dirt floor in 1921. No televisions, none of this technology, no lights, no nothing. Nothing. There would be no power most likely because the masses didn't have it back then. So we've come so far in 100 years, 100 years in the time human beings have been on the planet. And I, again, this goes back into all of this product and psychology of where we're all at at the moment, and that's why I find it so fascinating. But so much has happened in my area, because that's what industrial designers did. We were born out of the industrial period in the 30s and 40s to build product and make product repeatable, and then all of a sudden people became very rich from it, because then they went, oh, wow, I can make a, you know, an FM radio and... Make you know millions of them. Um, so what I find fascinating now is how condensed the last 100 years has been for the human being, and are we coping with all the variables from the last 100 years yeah. psychologically? Yeah, which I don't think we are. No, I don't so, you know, whether it's the computer you have or whether. It's relationships or dating. It's become so complex because now, you know, 100 years ago, I'm not saying that, but I could have asked you on a date. I could ask that, you know, that woman over there on a date. I can ask, you know, it, it personally and, um, you know, Awareness levels of all the things, being able to hop on a plane, understand all the aspects of the world now. Mm. I and find digital. all of that very fascinating. Where we're where we're at right now, and are, is our mind and are our minds coping with all of those things? Mm. And it just opens up many things. Yeah, just opens up. So, it so, opens up so many doors. As you know now, all of the things that have come out, obviously, which we all have opinions of, whether it's Black Life Matters or you know you know the all the whether it's you know lgbt or whatever it is or you know
1: or there's a there million aliens? things now
0: right hmm? <laughs> or are there aliens Do or aliens are there aliens ex- there you go yeah. Yeah. The, yeah so that i find that area very fascinating because mm. that impacts on you know all sorts of areas of life and business and you know
1: because anything's possible now, isn't it? Have you read *Homo Sapiens* by Yuval Noah Harari? No, I know. About. Yeah, I think you'd like it. Okay, it's a very, very good book, and it talks about that that stuff in particular. And you're right; it's super fascinating. It's mm. like how do how do humans deal with the fact that they've basically got in their phone all knowledge on Earth? Yeah, right. In in this device. Yep. Like that's crazy, and. The, you know, little things like Netflix and, and what people do now when it comes to watching entertainment, they they, f- they fall into sort of um, this period where they're just like stunned by the amount of choice that they have that they don't actually make a choice. I'm guilty of that. Yeah, like, We can be flick, sitting flick, there on flick, Netflix flick, flick, and right? you're just going through everything and it's like, oh, but maybe this would be better. Mm. So that affects the t- entertainment and then there's things like dating. Speak to friends who are dating or people who are single who are dating, and you look at things like Tinder has actually, and Hinge and all these other apps, has in a way ruined dating because all you do now, and some relate, it's ruined some relationships as well because all you see now is the fact that the grass could be greener. just There's so there.
0: much choice out there. Yeah, you're so, right. On,
1: you're spot on. So that that is one of the biggest ones to me is um, the abundance of everything has made a lot of people not so much complacent, but they're just they're 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 frozen. Yeah, in decision making.
0: Yeah, but let, the the ultimate, and that you're you're leading into it, the ultimate that this takes us to is a hundred years ago. You and I would be sitting there, whatever, would be having a beer or. Probably not, or some homemade, you know, moonshine or something, and there wasn't all the complexities and all the things. So mm. there wasn't the, and don't get me wrong, it was it was it was um, present, but mental illness wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Yeah. So a hundred years ago, people just got on with their lives, and it was. And I, I'm not being disrespectful, but, you know, a woman had her place, a man had his place, and the children had their place, and you lived and you had shelter and you got on with things. It was a simple life, right? But now, going back into what you were leading into, it's become so complex. Whether it's dating, whether it's choice, where do I go, what do I do, knowledge, It's it's pretty full-on stuff. Yeah. So now there's... New aspects of really heightened, you know, complexities of, you know, people and their stress and anxiety levels. I think you, you, you would know people's anxiety levels are through the roof now. Yeah. Their mental illness is through the roof. And I know that they're making, they're very aware of it. The government's very aware of it and people are very aware of it. But when you look at that timeline over the hundred years, you, you, it's, it, started there that's how it would have been but now for you know t- 2021 it sits up here whereas back then yeah. it would have been still here it's like a hockey puck so you know it's yeah. just opened up a gamut and the whether the human mind right now is able to deal with it i don't think it is
1: no i don't think so and it's a topic you could talk about for hours sorry <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good area that was yeah. a really good question so good i had um, to think about it though so let's talk about um rapid fire questions to To finish things off, the first one I always ask everyone is, um, what does your morning and evening routine look like?
0: Um, Morning is, it's pretty much work. Uh I I, I will get up. I get straight on to everything and I see what's going on. So I'm one of those people. So, you know, I wake up and I just get straight into work. Yeah. And I compress everything into two or three hours and I try and, get everything done that I need to get done. Then I will go out and I enjoy my day. Okay. And I'll go and I take the dogs for a walk or go and do things, you know, fitnessy things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I compress my morning. Get as much done when I'm awake and get straight into it um, first thing. And then my evenings, um, once I've finished that period, you know, through the day, I tend to get back at some point early evening and then I compress again for another few hours to get as much done for that day. So then I'm complete for that day. If we're talking work-wise, I try and compress and then I will enjoy my evening. Then I close it off and then, you know, I'll sit on whatever.
1: So at night, how do you sort of decompress? It sort of sounded like you just sit there and have the TV on in the background and just watch stuff.
0: Yeah,
1: like my average evening would be,
0: you know, I, 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 cooking a great meal. Definitely love cooking, so I cook, you know, five, six times a week. Um, and, you know, it, it's a glass of wine or a couple of glasses of wine and, and that's, that's sort of my evening. So mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, but again, I compress, as I said, and then I just allow to have, you know, I guess, downtime after that, thereafter.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. If you were to pick a movie, doco, TV show, podcast, any form of media that you'd recommend to the audience that you've watched recently and enjoyed, what Uh, would it be and why? uh, I've never never been
0: a – I love my documentaries, um, but they're – you know, they're not, there's not something that would, you know, come to mind that I'm saying, you know, go and watch this documentary. Movies, you know, there's a handful of great movies that I love, like anybody. But, um, you know, I've, I've only recently started, you know, getting into things like, um, you know, the some of the Marvel Universe and, <laughs> um, you know, even... You know all of that. Yeah. I, I've actually been enjoying a little bit. Even the, even re, even recently, I watched that Ted Lasso, and God, that made me laugh. Okay, I don't know that whether you watch um, that. That's on Apple TV. Apple TV. Yeah. yeah. But you know, there's some there's some good content out there these days. But I'm I'm a, I like everything. You know, I love comedies, I love action. You know, but if I if I ultimately had to watch anything in terms of series it would that you know it's always going to be a cooking series. Okay. You know, I love watching Rick Stein and you know uh,
1: yeah, people Rick like Stein's that obviously. you know I just
0: love yeah. watching his different you know things and yeah, know. I think you know things like that cooking shows do it for me not not competitive ones but more because they take you to parts of the world that you know that I've either been to and you delve into the culture and that that that's why I like those sorts of cooking shows because then I'm you know, immersing myself into that culture—whether I've been to Brazil or Russia or into China or whatever—it sort of takes you to those raw, those raw places.
1: Mm-hmm. Are you a yep. Bourdain fan? Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Bourdain. Even him too, right? Yeah, beautiful. Bourdain was the one for me. Yeah, same. Um, last question for you: best yes. purchase under two hundred dollars.
0: Uh, that I, uh, you know what I, I was looking at that, and <laughs> that was a good, that was a good question. Um, I actually have it here on me. Okay, and it's this thing here, which I've modified. But this is here, that an orbit key? this is the orbit key. Yeah. So if you guys have ever seen this, they're incredible. But what I've done, typical industrial designer, I've cut all the heads off the top of the keys. So I've even made it more lightweight. So this is my number one purchase. So there's about seven or eight keys in there, and that is my. Set of keys right there. Wow. No jingling, no mucking around. So when you say you've cut the
1: heads off, yeah, like wow, top, you've literally cut them, yeah, to right fit down. Yeah, so right. it fits in there. So it's this beautiful little. Because ordinarily, if you had it like this, you all would the have, heads would be around, be sticking out
0: around the outside. Correct. Wow. So I've really trimmed it down to make it into a,
1: like a. Super neat little, you know, compact. Do you know what's <laughs> funny is <laughs> we're actually talking to Orbit Key at the moment right now, which is oh, yeah. so funny. Yeah, that is so. so They've fun. done well. Good on them. Very I know clever. it's amazing, <laughs> um, Melbourne business too. Yeah, that's cool. I really like that. I've, I know that my my wife Lauren and. Um, Julia, who's our strategist, has said like they want to just buy everything on Orbit Key. Yeah, but there you go.
0: And this one's the top of the. I think this one's top of the range, and you know, it's leather, and it's you know it's all very nice, and it
1: matches my shoes today. Yeah, possibly. I'd probably go with. Um, um I've got like, this cliche thing of everything leather I buy is like a brown leather. Okay, I don't know why, but it's just my color. No, that's good. Yeah. You've got to mat you, You've got to coordinate. It's you've all got to about coordinate the, yeah. All about coordinating. It's sort <laughs> of like that. That. With the RM Williams shoes, it's sort of that um, I don't know what type of brown you call it, but it's it's sort yeah, of similar it's that to sort that. Of choc- yeah, chocolate.
0: So brand. can I just can I just one last one, which I f- I think was a really good question that you added in there, which whether we have time or not. But that the last question that I w- I wanted to uh, was it the per- the personal one, the most intimate or something? Um, just trying to think. The what? fifteen
1: minute one, one of the fifteen minute ones there. So we've got. Uh, I don't think it's one of these, but there's uh, what's in your fridge, no, food and drink of choice. No, the next one down. Important truth. What insight, the important truth. What insight about life seems obvious to you but not to others? Yeah,
0: I, I, I think that's a really important one to close off on. And I think it's probably the most important one because we haven't spoken entrepreneurial and we haven't spoken the, the business side of things, but I think the most important truth that people need to be aware of is having – a partner that is acceptable open and understanding of the life of a entrepreneur lives and thinks and to add to go to that next level as them as a supportive mechanism
1: yeah
0: that is probably the that's probably the big one of the biggest aspects of um, I think the entrepreneurial life is that you you really need somebody that um, you know that that understands that because mm. if you don't have that, you know you're you're constantly questioning yourself, which everybody does. You question all the things that you do. Obviously, everyone has confidence. You have varying levels of confidence, but having that supportive mechanism there is a really big area. So that's that's one of the truths that I would say that any budding entrepreneur coming, you know, uh, uh, through the ranks um, is having a good support mechanism there. Yeah. And no, whether that's a partner or whether that's somebody that's so close to you that- Friend you, or a co-founder. Which is, yeah, co-founder, right? Yeah. Which I haven't had a co-founder since more. And you are right. There you go, a yeah. friend or a co-founder. And that, that co-founder, I was able to bounce my stress and all the things off, right? Yeah. Now I don't have that. So it's recognizably a lot different- um, not having that person there because now I carry all the weight. Yeah. And, again, that partner, whether it's, you know, personal or not personal, that par- partner that understands what you're going through constantly. Because mm. it is hard. As you know, when you're a business owner or when you're an entrepreneur, whether I'm looking at half these people on the thing here, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, you know, those guys are so full on constantly that you you need someone that is there when you do switch off that supports yeah. you. And brings it back down to
1: earth. Yeah, yeah, I'd 100% agree with that. Um, I'm lucky enough to have that, so um, it's it's tough to find that though. And you interview a lot of people, and you can see that that they struggle with a lot of that. Yeah, you know, because they've had relationships or people that they're with, or people that they know, and um, oftentimes it comes down to the the matching of personality traits. I find. Yeah, you know, do you have someone who's not like you? Yeah, if that makes sense, not as intense as you. Yeah,
0: um, but yeah, no, a good one. I thought I'd finish off with that because I think it's pretty, pretty important. Yeah, I reckon you know? it's a great question,
1: but a lot of people struggle with that question. Yeah, okay. Don't know why, but um, yeah, and I don't think sometimes it enough time to, yeah. to think about. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think it gets talked enough in
0: that entrepreneurial aspect as having that other person that's sitting there that mm. you know that's behind behind you, and you always hear the story after the fact that you know they were there carrying you, which. They usually do. Yeah. They're they're usually your support mechanism. Yeah. So as your case, you know, you've got a great support mechanism in um, your wife, but again, she's, you know, she's your support and that's pretty important. Yeah. Pretty important stuff as you go through life and you go through business,
1: Mm.
0: especially when you're doing things that other people might not be doing and pushing the boundaries and whatever.
1: You need that. Yeah. Dion, thanks so much for coming in. Where can people find you on the interwebs? <laughs> <laughs>
0: over all of them, I'm sure of it. Um, but no, look out for us we're you know we're we're creeping our way into supermarkets. We just got our first foray into Woolworths Metro, so you know we're we're going through that trial period at the moment, so hopefully <laughs> soon enough we'll be in you know
1: in all their in all their stores across the country, so you know yeah. We'll we'll link, um, so we'll obviously link Drumplings. Um, it seems like you're most active on probably LinkedIn and Instagram, you yes, say? Yes, for Drumplings, yep. 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 Um, we'll link all of that, but um, Dion, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. Uh, We'd really appreciate that. You can also find our Clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Podcasts, Spotify and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube and behind the scenes takes and clips uh, on social media then definitely check out at uncommon underscore show on instagram but otherwise look thanks so much for tuning in and until next time thanks for listening